Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science on your radio, into your ears. We are here to deliver all the science, whatever your favourite-ology is. Or maybe you like the zists, the physics, the isks. yeah. (laughs) Uh, My name is Claire, and with me this week, we, of course, have Chris and we have Stu. Hello to the both of you. Hello, Claire. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. And Stu, hello. Hi. How are you going? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Refer to previous statement. Good. <laughs> and what have you brought for us this week, Stu? Because um, I have a feeling you've been chatting up a storm to someone. Yeah, well, look, it's, it's one of these things that kind of uh, I think about a lot is people are very concerned about climate change and, uh, you know, the effects of global emissions on the atmosphere and the, how that affects the climate. And one of the things that people are also concerned about is plastics in the environment, which are kind of not related directly these two things are not related directly in fact plastics are some of the lowest carbon products we can use for packaging and things like that but obviously the issue with that is that the plastics persist in the environment for quite a long time compared to other things i mean um i was reading the other day that um a a a cotton tote bag needs to be used 327 times uh, because it takes 327 times more carbon emissions to produce a cotton tote right. bag than a plastic shopping bag. So, you know, you kind of think, well, the plastic shopping bag is good from one perspective, but obviously plastics in the environment is a bad thing because they don't break down. Now, a lot of plastics can be recycled, but one plastic that can't be uh, by traditional or sort of conventional recycling methods is polystyrene, which we would probably all be familiar with. It's a very lightweight very useful, very versatile plastic packaging material. It's used for all sorts of things. It used to be used a lot for coffee cups and things like that as well, mm-hmm. um, sort of being phased out. But I spoke to a scientist from the University of Queensland who has found an ally in the insect world <gasps> who seemed to be able to eat polystyrene and convert it into n- not polystyrene anymore oh yeah oh i think i think i know exactly what you're talking about they're pretty incredible i can't i can't wait to hear what new science has come out about them yeah so uh dr christian rink uh from university of queensland uh spoke to me about they do call them superworms, but of course they aren't worms they are larvae of insects not worms which are a different class of uh invertebrate but People call them mealworms as well, right? So, yeah, interesting stuff. Maybe a a way forward which can, you know, we can take the benefits of plastics and not have the downsides of them potentially in the future as well. Brilliant. 
Um, well, I can't wait to hear more about that. It is definitely one of my more favourite topics is insects being able to eat things that you wouldn't expect them to eat. And Chris, what do you have for us this week? More insect well, stories or have you got you taking yeah, not, a different not, tangent? Not terribly in insectual. <laughs> like it's pretty groundbreaking stuff, obviously grubs that can eat polystyrene. But you know, not everything is like as cutting edge and as kind of future focused as that. Um sometimes just the everyday things around us I uh, basically my story is now sounding really pretty face um pretty Bring us back from the brink, Chris. Okay. Bring us back. You know I like to talk about your everyday physics that may not be well understood. And it's sometimes a surprise it was so well understood. And this week I am talking about yarns and ropes, you know, things, cables made out of, threads made out of twisted fibres, and new research is trying to understand exactly how how that works. And I'll be attempting to do a very kind of small home physics experiment. Oh, Chris, um, we love your home physics experiments. They're they, great for radio. They're great. <laughs> they're great for radio. You know, we're the only ones who can, who can see it, but... We can verify that you're yeah. actually doing the science. I'm going to have to do a video of this one and, and put it up on, on our social medias. Perhaps Brilliant. that would be a good, um, good way to go, yeah. Brilliant. All right, we'll stick around. On with the show. And I am talking about yarn or rope made from twisted fibres. Not exactly new. This is like technology that is rather old, I guess. There is evidence dating back to about 40,000 years ago from Neanderthals, of all people in France, uh, that they had um, sort of twisted bark fibres to make a kind of a cord. So it's been since been used for at least that long in human or, you know, proto-human culture pretty old stuff and but understanding how it works is also kind of a puzzle that's been quite old as well um no less a luminary than galileo himself in 1638 tackled the problem he said he identified that the twist binds the filaments together but he didn't really understand how that works fortunately physicists are on the case and for the last you know nearly (laughs) 400 years they've been working on it and so recent research published this year in um, the journal Physical Review Letters has set, shed some light on how it works. Um, this was Jerome Crassus of the Institute of Physics of Rennes and Antoine Seguin of the Université Paris-Saclay. Yes, they're French. I don't know if I'm saying this right. Are you sure? Um, Are you sure it's not, his name's not Antoine? Antoine. Antoine. I, I I see what you did there. But yeah, so these researchers, they um, they did some mathematical models, they did some calculations, some equations. They also did some experiments to test their theories and to, to find out, exactly, get the parameters involved and work out how it all works. The experiment they used was fairly simple. They just had kind of, I guess, cotton tassels, um, I guess you'd call them, that they twisted together. Um, and I'm going to try and replicate that in a very kind of, makeshift fashion with the only tass- best tassels I could find in my house 
which is the end of a scarf. Anyway, so what they did, like I said, they, they kind of... So you, you think about you have tassels. This is, like, very different to what they did. And this is, they use cotton. This is wool, clearly. Um, I had some other tassels that were, like, artificial fibres didn't work as well. So I'm, I'm using the wool tassels. And you just kind of, like, you know, combine the two tassels together. But obviously, if you don't twist it, you just kind of mix the ends together. Nothing happens. Like, if they're just two tassels. Right. So you're holding a tassel in each hand... Yeah. And then you're sort of smooshing them together yeah. in the middle and nothing is happening. Nothing happens, obviously. But if we kind of smoosh them together and then we kind of twist it around a few times. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And then we pull it apart. And then suddenly you tra- Oh. It's a lot harder to pull apart. Ah, okay. So you can try this yourself with your own tassels at home. I mean, you're um, sort of like making a knot. You're like, you're sort of knotting it up. Well, you're not really knotting it. You're just like putting the tassels together. But all you're doing differently is you're twisting it together. Mm. So you haven't tied a knot or anything. You've just twisted the fibres together. So the twisting, as Galileo identified, is important. But what's actually happening there, as it turns out, is that it is, it is friction between the fibres that is keeping it together. But the twist changes the nature of the friction force. So I don't know if you remember any of your physics from school, uh, how friction works but it is um, proportional to the, the force that is perpendicular to the surface that it's acting on. Okay, so normally if you think of like a box sliding across the floor, then um, it's proportional to the weight of the box pushing on the floor is the frictional force. So the heavier the box, obviously, the more friction mm-hmm. that there's going to be. So if you were to try to push the box... And instead of pushing it kind of horizontally, you push it like with a diagonal force, you would find it much harder to push because you are adding to mm, the force mm. that is um, increasing the friction. Okay, so when the fibers are twisted together, what happens is that when you pull on it, you're pushing the fibers closer together. You're actually increasing the force between acting on the fibers and increasing the force of friction between the fibers. So you, instead of like if they were just parallel, then the friction is going to stay the same when you pull it. But because they're at an angle from being twisted, what you're pulling is actually strengthening the force between it. It's actually very similar to the phenom- well-known phenomenon of when you get two phone books. And with, not that the kids today know what a phone book is, uh, but if you've got two phone books... And two big you, books. Yeah, you put the pages together, you interleave the pages, you know, one after the other, and they become very difficult to pull apart. And that's because the pages, again, they're not quite parallel, sliding against each other. Um, they are actually a slight angle, and when you pull, you increase the force pushing on each page, and so you increase the friction between the pages. And it actually gets a very strong bond. Great school holiday activity, knowing school holidays are coming up. Yeah, oh, just that's... find a phone book is your, is <laughs> two, your challenge. Two, two preferably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so in this case, so it actually is quite similar, the um, the mathematics between these two. So with the the phone book, you find that the, the force increases exponentially with the square of the number of pages um, in, the, in the books, which is why the phone books are particularly useful because they've got, you know, many, many thin pages. With the fibres, they found that the force increases with the square of the angle of twist. Um, so exponentially with the square of the angle of twist, I should say. And so this means that the the force actually increases very quickly as the twist increases. Mm. Um, some previous models, um, published a couple of few years ago, they tried to analyse it with some mathematics. They described it as a phase transition of when it kind of reaches this twisting that is very strong holding it together but this recent work says that it doesn't 
it's not actually a kind of a jump in like a phase transition. It's more, it's a continuous change, but it's just very rapid because it's very, it's exponential. So yeah, that increases the friction. Um, the strength of the actual resulting yarn they describe using a, um, a number they call the Hercules number. It combines things like the twisting angle with, you know, the friction coefficient and the radius of the fibers. And it's proportional to the square of the number of twists involved. And they found that for, in their tests, the, the critical value of this Hercules number was 30. Basically, when you get above 30, then you have too much twist and then it's the strength of the individual fibers becomes the weakest link and it will break when the fibers break. Right. So the, there is kind of, when you kind of pull on them, they won't unravel. The, the strength is based on the, the strength of the fibers involved. So using that, um, that value, they were able then to calculate, you know, if you had a given kind of material, with a given kind of fiber radius, they could tell you how strong your yarn could be and how, what the radius of the actual yarn could be. And they modeled it, say, for cotton and found that the optimal radius is about 80 micrometers uh, 80 microns, so I think 0.08 of a millimeter, which is very similar to what is actually used in cotton yarn. So mm-hmm. it kind of works out with practical kind of knowledge that's developed over, as I said, 40,000 years or so. Um, and if you had thicker fibers, then we actually be weaker. So the thinner fibers in that case are actually better. They're around the, the right, the optimal kind of size of those fibers. So, so the people who made cotton have obviously come to this conclusion without knowing the physics behind it. They've just sort of, by trial and error, found out which is the strongest cotton to use and, and how big, or, you know, how to, how to make the cotton vibes out of it without understanding yeah. how it actually worked, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, and this is where you could say, oh, well, then what has this, does this, how does this help us? Because we have been doing this for thousands of years. We know how to make cotton and we know how to make ropes. Um, so what's the big deal? But um, like these researchers have said that, you know, now there is kind of, we are trying to make more environmentally friendly, perhaps, um, fabrics. Um, Stu, you pointed out that a cotton tote bag itself is not necessarily the most environmentally friendly material so you know finding different fibers you can mix it up with and being able to calculate what the optimal size of the yarn would be is kind of a benefit then you don't have to do that hundreds or thousands of years of trial and error you can just stick the numbers into equation work out the hercules number etc etc like that so yeah so that is i guess one possible application of it but generally you know i just like to nerd out and yeah, understand what's going on with um, this uh, the weird physics in the world around us. We, we might not we might not be able to you know ask the question how long is a piece of string, but we can at least know how strong is a piece of string. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short range radio signals yet, except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind boggling. Of course, that's. Uh, mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. One of the big issues in the environment that people are concerned about currently, aside from obviously the big climate change questions, is the issue of plastic pollution. And many of the plastics that get used in industry can be recycled and repurposed in some way. But one of the big stumbling blocks is the commonly used plastic polystyrene, which is used in a lot of packaging and single-use purposes. 
But polystyrene has no viable industrial way of being recycled. But people have been researching ways to solve the polystyrene problem. And one of those people is with us today on Lost in Science. This is Dr. Christian Rinke from the University of Queensland. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Uh, Thanks for having me, Stu. So... You have been working on the, the the problem, I guess, of polystyrene. What is it? What approach have you taken to to looking at the issue of polystyrene waste? Yes, I'm a microbiologist, so we were interested in biodegradation of plastic, in particular of polystyrene. And in, in our latest study, we used insect larvae, known as superworms, and we did feed those insect larvae polystyrene in our feeding trials, and we could show that they can survive on polystyrene and even more interestingly they did gain a little bit of weight by eating only polystyrene so how did you how did you even come up with this concept of of uh feeding these larvae uh polystyrene it seems it seems like an odd choice to make to feed them yeah yeah it, it is a bit odd but um they are known as superworms but as we mentioned they're insect larvae and insect larvae have very good mouth parts so they're very good in destroying and eating things. And there were previous reports of other insect larvae, for example, the, the wax worm, which is the larvae of the moth. And it has been shown that they can eat holes in the plastic bags. And those are pretty, pretty small larvae. Then also um, mealworms, those are larvae of the mealworm beetle. And we thought, well, if those small larvae can, can damage and eat plastic, then the larger ones, the superworms, which are about twice the size, could po- possibly also do it and maybe even are more efficient in doing so. And that's that's how we got started. So we didn't know at the beginning if the superworms could eat the polystyrene. And they were a bit skeptical at first because you know it's, it's not their natural feed. Uh, but after 24 hours, they were actually exploring it and then finally started to eat the polystyrene. And uh, yeah, they're doing it ever since and uh, seem to be happy. So uh, when when they were uh, introduced to the polystyrene, is that the only food source they have, or or is there other food around? Do they do they selectively go for it, or is it only when that's the only thing to eat? Yeah, we were really interested in capability of eating the polystyrene, so we were a bit mean and gave them only polystyrene. So that was that was the only food source they had, and uh, yeah, so they, they went for it after a while. Okay, so they, they they didn't have any choice really; they had to eat the eat the plastic or go hungry yes yes pretty much that's 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 how it went about yes um okay so these are these are insect larvae so uh how how long are they in this form of of being the 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 worm-like insect larvae and how long can they eat the uh eat the polystyrene for yeah so the they are insect larvae of uh, sophobus moria that's the darkling beetle and it depends but usually they're in the larvae stage for about at least five to six months and then they become a pupae, and then they undergo metamorphosis and turn into the adult beetle. And uh, we did uh, we did experiment to see if that uh, development is impacted by the polystyrene. So we had uh, the trials, and we had polystyrene. We also had one group that got the regular feed, the brand, and one group that was starving, so they got no food at all. And we then followed the life cycle, and the starvation groups had a very low success rate of becoming beetle, only 10%. Uh, the polystyrene was about two thirds, and if they get the regular food, it was about ninety percent that could go through the life cycle and then become a beetle. So that was interesting to see that uh, polystyrene is definitely better than no food, but it's it's you know it is a poor diet. 
so they don't get as much nutrients from it as if they would have the regular. Do you think there's any potential for selecting for uh, strains of the larvae that might be able to get more nutrition out of the out of the polystyrene or, or preferentially feed on it or anything like that? That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, possibly. I think what we have to do is we have to um, observe the larvae in more detail because what we realized is that it took them a while to actually eat the polystyrene. And once the first one started doing it, the other ones kind of followed. So we have to get the smart guys <laughs> that do it first. <laughs> and maybe we can focus on that. But what we really after is actually the, the microbes in the gut of the larvae. So what we think happens is that the, the worm or the larvae, they first eat the polystyrene, they shred it into smaller pieces, then ingest it, and basically feed it to the microbes in their gut. And we did investigate those bacteria. We did find a few enzymes that are encoded in those bacteria that are able to degrade the polystyrene. So we think it's actually a symbiosis. The worm does the first part. It eats the plastic, shreds it, and then the microbes in the gut, they actually help to break it down further. So the, so the insect larva itself is, is, is mechanically breaking up the polystyrene. And then it's, it's, really, the, it's really the gut bacteria that are doing the the uh the the recycling i guess um so so is is there more potential in maybe rather than looking at the insects directly but looking at the microbes and maybe selecting the microbes that do the best job might be the way to actually uh get some use out of this discoveries yes yes that's exactly what we are after i mean one could in theory have like gigantic worm farms and and feed those with polystyrene but that doesn't scale very well so our idea is definitely to go after the microbes and their enzymes. And what we're going to do over the next years is to characterize those enzymes better. So we have an idea what type of enzyme they are, what they're supposed to do, but we really have to prove that um, in, in the lab, in a test soup, to actually show that they do um, degrade polystyrene, what their role actually is. But yes, we definitely want to focus on that. And the idea is that we can then basically um, mimic the process, right? We can mechanically grind the plastic and then expose it to the enzymes, which then break it down further. And that's, you know, we can produce enzymes in large batches, so that should be easier to actually scale and have, in the future, hopefully at some point, an industrial use for this, uh, for this discovery. So when the, uh, when the mealworms have been feeding on the, um, oh, sorry, the, the superworms have been feeding on the uh, polystyrene, um, I, know, I know some of these species are fed to uh, animals as well as sort of as food. Is there any uh, reason that these uh, polystyrene-fed worms wouldn't be able to f- be fed to other animals or be used in some other way like that? Um, I have to be honest, we haven't really explored that um, that much. But uh, the, the worms itself, I mean, they don't gain, gain as much energy from the polystyrene. And other than that, we didn't see any adverse health effects in, in our study. But we haven't, we haven't um, you know, when to the next level to see if you actually used it as a feed, um, how, how that would impact then, you know, uh, let's say a pet litter or whatnot. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's some future, future research we still have to um, conduct to, to see what, what the effects would be. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting. I'm, I, I know people are concerned about um, amplification through the food chain of various things, and I was just wondering, that brings me back to the other question of when the polystyrene is... Uh, digested by the bacteria what are the what are the actual byproducts what is what is produced it's obviously not polystyrene anymore it's it's other 
substances. What are those other substances? And is there any way we could do anything with those? Yeah, and we, we don't know the full picture yet, but what we have inferred is that the enzymes, the papyrial enzymes, uh, can break the polystyrene down to styrene. And styrene is a, is a compound that actually exists in nature. Um, so that means there are other microbes that can break down the styrene further. We have, we have identified a few pathways and enzymes there. And our idea is that we, we use the microbial enzymes to degrade the plastic. And then you can feed the pie products, which are really just main metabolites, but still like pyruvate or whatnot, um, to other microbes. And they can then be used to produce something that has a higher value, for example, like bioplastics. So that way we could, we could degrade, we could break down the polystyrene, and then through some intermediates involving enzymes and then other bacteria, we could produce a product uh, that would be, for example, bioplastic. So that would be one, one approach to, to um, have a useful end product from the degradation process. Um, I, that that would be great, I guess, from a from a investment point of view, is getting people to uh, use this as a sort of resource recovery. Is is there are there also ways to break it down into, you know, um, biodegradable? I mean, it's already biodegradation uh, in a way because that's what the microbes are doing. But uh, biodegrade the the byproducts again further and further until they're basically indistinguishable from naturally occurring substances that might just be okay to be in the environment is that is that something that's possible yeah yeah i, w- I would say it's possible if you look at the at the pathways that are encoded in the microbes they can break down it seems like the polystyrene the styrene and then further degrade the styrene and they can actually break the, the molecular structure it has a ring structure they can break it open and then really incorporate that into their cell mass and gain energy from it so yes as far as we know you can you can break it down it's not like other uh process for example like a a chemical breakdown where you have a lot of um, hazardous and carcinogenic byproducts. As far as we know, if we do, if you use the enzymes to break down polystyrene, um, that should really um, end or produce products that are not not as harmful. But you know, again, that's that's what we inferred based on all the all the genes we have. So we really also have to prove that in the lab that it really happens that way. Well, it's really uh, interesting work that you're doing there, Chris. And uh, I'm eager to find out more about uh, uh, where your research will go and more more detail about how this might be uh, employed as an actual solution to a real world problem, which is causing issues all over the place. So thank you for joining us on Lost in Science and telling us about the the super worms who might save us from a mountain of polystyrene. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. And yes, we, we definitely want to uh, push this the science a bit more here and then continue our research and, and learn more about the enzymes and their role in degrading polystyrene. Thanks very much. Thank you, Stu. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight.gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1. 
or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.